Welcome to the Midwest Church Planting Project, where we connect you with local church planters to learn about life and leadership here in the passive-aggressive Midwest. I'm your host, Davis Johnson. Well, welcome to the season finale of the Midwest Church Planting Project. I am giddy. This episode is a long time coming. Since first transitioning out of the business world to working at Hope Community Church in Minneapolis, a personal goal of mine has been creating or finding a pathway to give away some of the wisdom of Steve Treichler, the founding planter of Hope and regional director of Acts 29 in the Upper Midwest. Working with Trike these past few years has been an unexpected form of education that I frankly wouldn't trade for the world. He is a guy who is highly educated with a lot of intellectual horsepower, yet he has this unprecedented care for making his ministry accessible to all people. And on today's episode, we'll hear how that came to be as he describes the three priorities he's dedicated his working career towards. So buckle up, because there's a lot to take in coming your way. So without further ado, let's turn to the church-planting Yoda himself, Pastor Steve Treichler. Yeah, well, my name is Steve Treichler. I am currently the uh, senior pastor at Hope Community Church. Helped start the church in 1996. Uh, before that, I came on staff with the Navigators in 1987 and worked with them for five years and then was in seminary between then and when we planted Hope, uh, working at Bethlehem Baptist Church as an intern there. And, and Steve, I, I know the story, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't. What was the impetus to move from working from NAVS to working as a church planter? When did you know that you wanted to be a church planter? That's actually a really great question uh, the, because I, I think it has a lot to do with who we are as a church and, and kind of what gave me a passion for church planting. Uh, I actually uh, came to Christ through parachurch ministry, always viewed parachurch as a, as a vital way to reach people who didn't know the gospel because of all the trappings there were with church and churchianity. And so I look at that in my experience coming to Christ through uh, Parachurch, the Ministry of the Navigators, which I still have a very, very high regard for. But after around five years with the Navigators, I realized there was some real significant gift mix things that I wasn't able to use with the NAVs. I, I'm a teacher. That was my training um, as well, a public school teacher. I desired to have uh, those opportunities to work with people in a teaching environment, but also work with them longer term. And what we were finding with the NAVs is kids were coming to us. This is even back in the in the early, late 80s, early 90s. Kids were coming to us less and less churched. And so what we were finding is that we did a lot of investigative Bible studies with that. Some of them weren't even coming to Christ for like a year. And so we were finding that our students were sophomores and juniors, even before they were ready to serve. And then I had them for one more year and they graduated and they were gone. And I realized, yeah, this current rate, we're not, we're not making a dent here. So I started asking a question, is this the best place for me? Hmm. And so I started thinking about maybe what would be that situation where I could work with people a little bit longer term. And it, and it came out that maybe I should work uh, in a church. And that shocked me because I, at that time, and I'm saying this to my shame. So before you put a bunch of hate mail out there. I viewed the local church as completely irrelevant to the needs of non-Christians. I, I didn't bring non-Christians to church. Every time I tried, it was a complete fiasco. I just thought this is not the way we're going to reach the world. You got to do it outside of the church and just somehow 
tie people into the church later. And so I don't know. So what I did was I I thought, well, I should go to seminary. I guess that's what you're supposed to do. And so I went to seminary, but before, and I was going to go in the fall, but I was teaching and working for the navigators at the, at the time. And I was going to be taking a leave of absence from teaching and resigning from the navigators. And before I did that, I thought, you know what? I should take one class at seminary to see if I can handle this thing. Not the workload, but more just the church scared me and church culture scared me. And I didn't, I didn't see the relevance. And so I thought I'll take one course. And the reality is I just looked at, there was three courses that even fit into my schedule because I was teaching and working with the NAVs. There's only three possible courses that fit. One was, I remember on church ethics and I thought that's a bad one to start with. I'm pretty unethical. So I didn't do that. And the other one was on that. I can recall. And there was a third, I I don't remember what it was, but the, the second one was on starting new churches. And I thought to myself, yeah, that fit. I, I'd taken a seminar at an Urbana conference way back. And I had thought, yeah, I kind of, this is a cool thing. I like the concept of starting new churches. They were talking then in a missions context. But that's all I thought about it. So I took this class on starting churches. And, I and uh, uh, you know, not the first week or two, nothing too big. It was just kind of the concept of church planting and why do church planting, the Great Commission, all this. I'd wasn't anything new, but the moment of conversion for me was when the past, the, the, the professor, excuse me, uh, he's actually just a local church planter by the name of Paul Johnson and still, still a friend. And he had a whiteboard and the whiteboard was completely empty. And he looked at us in the class and I still remember this. It was all men in the class. And he said, gentlemen, this is your church. What do you want it to be? And I remember that that hit me just because it was saying you can you can design your church the way you think God would have you design it, and that was a that was a moment of conversion for me. That was a, as John Wesley would say, my heart was strangely warmed towards church planting. I just felt that yeah, you can actually make a church being about reaching people for the gospel, about discipling them, developing them into leaders. So I did not have this grand ecclesiology this great understanding of the mission of God and what he's trying to do through the church and anything like that. I just didn't want to waste my time with church politics and some of the things that I had seen out there. And so I was like, this sounds like a great idea. Let's just start a church. That was, I wish I could say it was more noble than that. It's not, it was just, I'm fundamentally lazy. And I just saw this as a much easier way than trying to become a pastor of a church and to try to change that culture into one where you could bring in people outside the faith into an environment like that so honestly that's the way it all got started and where did you go from there to prepare for what it was to plant a church and and how did your mind change about the local church for what you wanted it to be with what you saw that it was does that make sense yeah those let me divide those questions back up the the first one you asked is how did it progress from there so when the final project for this class was to write a proposal, whether you're going to do it or not, it doesn't matter, but write a proposal as if you're going to uh, plant a church. And he told us it couldn't be any more than six pages long. So I knew this guy was already speaking my love language because writing things down <laughs> is not my is not my love. So I put together this plan of uh, six, and I said, Lord, where where should we do this? If we're going to do it, where would we do it? And it hit me that I thought, I love college students. I came to Christ a college student. I would really like to be engaged with that age group and that people group. That's just where I kind of felt God calling me. And so we thought, well, where? You know, where should we do this in the United States? And, and really it boiled down to, 
a here because we'd already had a lot of contacts here. I worked with the navigators here at the University of Minnesota. I had a lot of contacts. I, I knew the campus. But then there's always been a wonder, a wanderlust to Colorado in our hearts. Hmm. Uh, Carol and I both have a desire to sometime in our life to either live or rent a place for a long period of time in Colorado. And so we thought seriously about Boulder, Colorado. Um, and uh, there was a lot of reasons why to go there, but it ended up we decided to stay just primarily because we had so many relationships here and everything was set up here. Hmm. And so uh, that led to this desire to start a church. And then when I started doing my internship at Bethlehem Baptist, that was I came in day one saying, I need to let you know that if I'm going to do an internship here, I want to tie in with you, but I also want to let you know that I'm planning to start a church. And that's what I, with the way I see God leading that. And does that interest you? Because if it doesn't, let's just not go down this road. It's like saying to someone, Hey, why don't we date? But I don't think we'll ever get married. Right. You know? So it's like, Hey, you know, I just, I want to be up front here. God may change my plans here, but it's fair for me to tell you this. And at that point in time, they were, they were very interested in, in having a plan. So that's how it kind of progressed. I thought we'd do it after two years. I thought I would go two years to the to Bethlehem, raise a group, and then start this church somewhere um, near the campus at the University of Minnesota. But for a variety of reasons, it just felt like, no, we should finish our schooling and be done. So we did it four years, which was then 1996. Hmm. So that, that kind of is how it progressed. And at that time then, I had been dialoguing with primarily one gentleman by the name of Stan Oster. And we'd been meeting for breakfast probably monthly up at a county road, Perkins. And we uh, just talked about life and ministry and starting a church. And he was in. He was all in. So it was him and I as we thought about this thing early on. And then uh, I was teaching a young marriage class at Bethlehem Baptist, which had about 75 people. I guess it's married. It's got to be even 76 uh, people or 74 on a good, you know, whatever. And uh, so... Uh, ended up that uh, seven families joined us. Or excuse me, six families joined us. Seven total. It was fourteen adults and seven or eight kids or something like that. Uh, that helped form the beginning of Hope Community Church. Mm-hmm. And we met. I know it sounds completely, you know, like everybody's story, but we we literally did meet in my living room, prayed, planned, talked about what we wanted the church to be, and. And as I look back at those days, I am blown away by how much God protected us because we did not know what we were doing. And yet, uh, God just opened the doors and allowed these people to get along. We still, there's not a person on that team. We don't like each other. We still like each other. Uh, We get together. uh, It's crazy. And just allowed that to happen. And we made some really foolish mistakes. They were mistakes. They weren't like you know, purposeful, hurtful things. It just, we made mistakes in the early days that we all just laughed about. And, and God in his kindness, just like you do with a toddler, you don't yell at them for falling down. You just gently pick them up and kind of keep it going. So that was kind of the etymology of how it, how it all happened or took off. I think my change in what the local church was about, honestly, probably didn't happen until, I don't know, maybe three, four, five years into the church plan. Hmm. And at that time, then uh, we were part of Team America, which was part of Baptist General Conference, now called Converge. 
that was really pushing church planting as a way to reach people for Christ. And that's when it started to click with me that, oh yeah, if we're a church that actually raises leaders and starts churches, we can actually start helping to fulfill the Great Commission. And then that linked to, wait a minute, I think that's the way God designed churches to be. And started looking at ecclesiology from the book of Acts and especially in Ephesians 2, just understanding what God's purpose was, what he was trying to accomplish uh, in some of those things. And so that's when it, it, it was more experiential than, oh, I started with this real noble theology yeah. and, and moved on forward. Yeah, I'm going to back the bus up a little bit back to your preparation and your training I'd be curious to hear from you, what, what what were some things in your time in that internship or in seminary that as you look back were really formational for you? Were there relationships or classes or anything in particular that really stand out as you look back that really formed you into the planter you became in, in 1996, was it? Yeah, I, I would say I really did enjoy, uh, uh, for the most part, my time at Bethel Seminary. I, I really, when I was there, I think was some of the golden age of Bethel Seminary. There were some fantastic professors who really tried to pour into the lives of, of their students and help them be pastors. So it was kind of a pastor training school back in those days. Um, and I know seminaries are in flux right now, and it, it's very, very difficult to run a seminary. So I'm not, I'm not going to be critical at all of the difficulties that Bethel has had since then. I understand all the dynamics at play. But when I was there, oh no, there was there was significant. My advisor was Tom Schreiner, um, and he was here before he went to Southern. In fact, there was a whole mass exodus to kind of Southern from our from our seminary uh, towards the end of my my tenure there. But I, I had some good professors who really believed the gospel and also were intriguing to help me to be a pastor. Hmm. I remember classes on pastoral leadership um, and pastoral evangelism. They were really, really great. And so those were great. My internship at Bethlehem was also just a good experience. Uh, the church wasn't large when we were there. I mean, it was 1,200 people, but for when John Piper's the lead pastor, you'd think it would be even larger. It really didn't grow until after we left, which I don't hope those are not a one-to-one. -one probably, yeah. <laughs> so, but we, uh, we, we were just intrigued with the way larger church happened. I mean, it wasn't a mega church by any means at that point. I think that the best formative thing was there was when they went through their crisis with the, uh, the, um, uh, the situation that happened with the worship pastor, or I think he was music minister or whatever he was. And it was an adulterous situation, which is awful. And we don't wish that on anyone, but as an intern, it was a tremendous experience to learn, hmm. to learn through pain. Uh, to learn through a congregation's pain, uh, to learn through a staff, um, and to watch that, and to be on the, to in be one click outside of the emotional connectedness that they all had, with the betrayal they felt. Whereas I didn't, I didn't feel betrayed by this guy. I didn't, I didn't really know him very well, and um, and and I liked him. He was an okay guy, and I, still, I think the Lord's done great things in his life uh, since then. I've heard really good things, but. But to watch that, and that was the best education ever. And I've told interns that at our church too as well. As we've gone through some conflicts and different struggles. And I said, you watch now. You learn from this because this, hmm. this is priceless uh, time. You can't get this anywhere else. I would say at that time I learned some things I wouldn't do. And I, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and But uh, 
They had open mic sessions when the congregation was very angry at certain decisions that were being made. Oh boy, never do that. Hmm. Uh, that was brutal. Uh, there were and this is Bethlehem Baptist, which is a pretty, uh, you know, pretty. Uh, I'd guess I'd say pretty clean place, you know, and and uh, and there were people swearing into the microphone. Now at our church we call that Tuesday, right? But <laughs> but here they were just like, I mean, they were really, really ticked, and it it blew my mind. It was that kind of venom. And so they ended up losing about 10% of their people through some of this and about 20% of their money. Wow. Um, the 10 that, that left were real big givers. Mm-hmm. And I watched, they call it there the, the year of tears. And that was huge for me to learn as an intern. So it also provided some extreme difficulties trying to plant on the heels of that, you know, so. Hmm. Well, I'd like to transition now and ask you a few questions um, in particular. I, I've heard you say a number of times uh, about, I think it was a number of years ago, I don't know what year it was, that you decided that you were going to give yourself to three things. Primarily, your your working life, your career was going to be dedicated to three things. Yeah. Uh, what are those three things, and how did you kind of come to the conclusion that these were going to be the, the things that you were going to dedicate your waking hours to? Yeah, it's great. It's really good. I uh, made a decision in um, about 19 – let's see. So we started the church in 96. After around three years, it was about 150 people, roughly in that category, 150 or so. Um, and in our vernacular, that's fine. That's a good thing. Uh, it was sustainable now. The, the amount of people there, about 50% college students. So it's about 75, you know, I used to call them real people. Then I got rebuked for saying that, but let me say it anyway, real people, because they could, they could, uh, actually support the church financially and in other ways as well. We great students, many of which are still with us today. Um, but we were able to, we were functioning. And so I guess the, the question then became to me in 1999, we're just three, three and a half years into this thing is, should I do this somewhere else? Should I go do it again? What, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? You know? And so on. And I also was, something happens. Uh, you've had, uh, at that time we'd had all our children. Our youngest is four, three or four, somewhere in there. And, uh, you just start to think, you know, if I'm going to make a move, now would be a great time because later they're going to be getting into middle school and high school. I don't want to uproot them and all that kind of stuff. So I started asking, Lord, when do you know that you're done or you should move on? Or how, what's the what's the deal here? Hmm. And I felt a real strong thing. A couple things is uh, Piper had always said to us interns when we were there. He said, let the default always be long pastorates. So plan on retiring from where you're at until the Lord calls you otherwise. But don't think, I'm here three to five, and then what's next? Just kind of have as the default, long pastorates. So, and I I can see the value in that and the wisdom in that. You, it takes a while to get things going, especially if you're trying to make change. In our case, we were starting from ground zero, so we'd have to make change, but we had to set a culture. That was one thing. Then I started looking at what my passions were and where I felt that God had uniquely uh, given me a desire to be involved in. And also I had seen some semblance of blessing behind it. And as I prayed about it and thought about it and talked to people, I saw three areas. And those three areas were uh, I always wanted to give myself to to preaching and to being involved in a, in a type of preaching that both engages the non-believer so that they can move closer or come to the point of saying, Yes to Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Guide for a living. 
and engages the believer to move in a way that wants them to kill false gods, move towards Christ and find joy and completeness in him through the gospel. So that, that was one thing, the preaching of God's word or the proclamation of it. Second thing was I felt like a lot of people had poured into me over the years. And I think the way that we win the war is not by becoming a really important person, but by developing leaders. And so I had seen a level of success in developing people. It's difficult work, a lot of failures, no doubt. I take ownership for those failures, but I just wanted to do that. And then the third thing would be I wanted to see us multiply our church and to be involved in the nation and in the world with a multiplication of churches. So those three things, hmm. leadership, uh, uh, preaching, leadership development, and church planting. And so then that led me to a course of saying, I think I can do that right where I'm at. And do that effectively. And I came to our elders and, and asked them, here's what I'd like to give myself to. It certainly fits within my job description. I'll do all the rest of the things I need to do on my job description. But these are the ones that I, I want to do. Now, let me just say this. If I got fired tomorrow, and maybe there's a secret meeting I'm not knowing about right now, and my wife's probably the head of that committee, uh, that are my key's not going to fit in the door tomorrow, I still would give myself to these mm. three things. Mm. It, it, it's not vocational. It's calling. So... Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Let's talk about those three things. I, yeah. I got some pointed questions for you on sure. them. Uh first let's talk about preaching the gospel. Yeah. I've heard you I mention yes. uh, a number of times that there's there's a number of questions you ask for every sermon you hear. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. What are the questions and, and how did you land on them? Yeah, I, I, I think I don't remember where I landed on these. So the, what did it say? The art of creativity is finding something really good and forgetting its source. So I don't, I don't recall where I got these. So none of these are original, but I would say there's three things that as I preach the three things that I want to evaluate that sermon on the number three, it doesn't matter what passage doesn't matter what I'm talking to. It doesn't matter the context I'm talking in. There's three things that I want to make sure that I, I do. And I, I, I keep meaning to put them on the back of my door before I leave, but I do ask myself these three questions. I ask and I often ask of them during the offering song. And I, I re- put them back through my mind. And those those three questions. Number one, is Jesus Christ the hero of this sermon or is something else? Am I or whatever? Is Jesus the hero? Even I'm preaching the Old Testament and he's only going to be mentioned somehow as how this finds its conclusion in the New Testament. Is he still seen as the hero in all of this? Because otherwise uh, otherwise it's, it's not Christian preaching. <laughs> it's just either moralism or good stories or boy, you're really funny, pastor, or whatever. Second thing is um, whatever issue I'm bringing up, is the gospel the answer? Because if we don't preaching that, we are now preaching moralism. Hmm. We are preaching that um, that through self-effort or through being better or whatever, uh, we're, we're preaching legalism. If, if somehow the answer to the question number two is that the gospel's got to be the answer now that can look a lot of different ways and there can be a lot of very practical things of a lot of effort that i do but it's got to be written in the gospel otherwise it's a problem and then the third thing is is i know that every week people take a chance and they invite someone to church um, and i've often said that the the highest compliment i get in preaching is not you know, I usually stand down front afterwards and somebody comes up to me and maybe they're new at the church and, you know, I get this a lot just because I love to, I'm a, I'm a jokester and they have never, maybe never heard that before in a sermon and they say, you're really funny. That was awesome. Or you really had my attention or, 
Or it's always fun to hear the unchurched guys because they like to come up and say, that was a hell of a talk. They're hell of a talk, guys, right? Just had that happen at a funeral or at a wedding. I did. <laughs> that, was a, that was a hell of a hell of a service you did there, sir, Pastor. It's like, well, thank you. Um, that's great. Those are nice. I mean, they're, they're good. You really made me think, uh, whatever. Those are great. The highest compliment as I'm meeting someone is, is two people come down front and it's someone that I know. And they say, hey, I just want you to meet Bob. And I, uh, Rob came to church with me today, and he's from my workplace, and I, I just wanted you to meet him. Hmm. And I know what that means. It means they're taking a risk today. They're trusting me with a sacred relationship they have with someone who they love and care for, and yet know that they're not saying yes to the gospel, and so that they can be easily offended by needlessly saying something that would call them stupid or call them immoral or whatever. And I take that 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 relationship very seriously. So my third thing, that's a lot of, took me a long time to get the third one is, am I going to honor the sacred relationship? Am I going to say things in such a way that if I do anything at diminishing towards culture or non-Christians, I'll do the same shots at Christians. Hmm. Just, just that there's the level ground before the cross. We really believe that the gospel is the answer for everyone in the room, Christian or non. And so, we're all, I, I, it's very important that I that you have that. And so, do I always hit all three of those? No, I think sometimes I, I don't hit them where I want to, but that's the aim every single week. Yeah, and those are the three questions. Yep. If there's a listener now who who's really thinking about that last question in particular, what are some recommendations or suggestions for them to work on that in yeah. their sermons? I, a lot of things. Okay, so here's the deal. We preach through the Bible. So if you've never been to our church, you'll be shocked because you'll have heard that, you know, hope reaches unbelievers, but we cover more Bible than most churches I've ever met. So you go, whoa, that doesn't seem very quote unquote seeker sensitive, right? It's not it's not three stories and a and a and a and a happy prayer at the end or whatever. It's a lot of Bible. And our feeling on it is Word of God changes lives. So take that pressure off. I don't need to be cute. Um, I can just, the word of God will do the work and, uh, seekers are not stupid. They're just ignorant. That's a key one to us. So that means in other words, they can understand the concepts. They just don't know them. Hmm. They don't know the whole vernacular. They live in a different world. They speak in a different language. They don't have Christianese there. Hmm. So you've got to just. Go through your, your, you know, listen to your sermon. Listen to your sermon as if you were uh, an unbeliever yourself. Now, for some of you, you grew up, you know, you grew up going to church all your life. You don't know what that's like. I, I didn't. I grew up in Iron Range where, you know, beer is like orange juice and cussing is like, well, cussing is like talking. So we're used to speaking in a different way, very different than perhaps a lot of people think of Minnesota nice. And so think of it that way. What would it be like if, if your neighbor were there? You're, if you knew that your neighbor, who you've been having this conversation with, well, how would you talk to them? How would you want to be talked to? How did I want to be talked to as an 18-year-old when I didn't know Christ? And so for me, I, I have I have a little patience for people that use big theological words without explaining them. The reality is almost every big theological word is nothing fancy at all. It's just a big word on a really simple concept. Um, and you can you can explain that to people very quickly so that they don't feel stupid Mm. and it doesn't, you don't have to take hours and hours. I'm serious. It just takes, if you use the word justification, 
use something silly like it's just as if I never sinned. It's what makes me okay with a holy God. You know, I, that's it. I mean, what, that took me, what, eight seconds? I don't have to, you know, quote all these things on justification. Mm-hmm. I, I made it very simple so everybody on the page, everybody in the room understands for the most part, you know, what's going on. So think about that. Think about incorporating moments that are are much more sensory. Uh, think about using good illustrations. I know that people are like, oh, I just want to talk theology. It's like, yeah, I can guarantee you. Like, on the way out, I can guarantee if you give an illustration, that's what they remember. Hmm. And I think that's what love does, right? Love says, I love you so much that I am going to lay down my preference for yours and going to speak in your language. And so love does that for people. Well, I'm just telling through the pulpit, love on people. Just say it so they get it. They understand it. I give myself about a B plus as a communicator. You can already tell in this podcast here, I can (laughs) barely use the English language, right? But I love on people and I speak in their language. Hmm. And as a result, people come. And I think I think that's that's lacking. Yeah. Okay, there there's a lot more to it. If you start with those, it's mm. a great place. What are some of the bigger mistakes you see young guys make in preaching, whether it's gospel center preaching or just preaching in general? What what are some of those big mistakes that you see for young guys? Wow, everything. No, <laughs> I, I I'm very very hopeful. I mean, I, when I started Hope, I was 31 years old. Uh, and I look back and see the people who uh, we now do a lot of church planting assessments at Hope, and, and I see the 31-year-olds, and they are miles ahead of where I was. Hmm. In some ways, it's a good thing. In some ways, it's a bad thing. I think they also come in a little more arrogant than that I was. Uh, I, 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 think I, knew, I knew that I didn't know stuff. These people know that they kind of know stuff, so maybe that's not a good thing. But I, I think they're in a lot of ways. They're certainly ahead on understanding church planting strategy and how it all works, and they're a million miles ahead from where I was. Preaching-wise, though, um, it, they say it takes five to seven years of preaching 40-plus times a year to gain what they call your voice. I think a lot of people listen. Oh, there's a lot of podcasting going on. So you're listening to Piper or Chandler or Keller or D.A. Carson or Eric Mason or you know, whoever your guy is, right? And you can't help it, but that becomes like, that's my voice. Mm-hmm. And so I saw a lot of guys when I was there at Bethlehem that would preach like John Piper. And uh, the highest compliment I ever got at Bethlehem is years later, I did come back and preach there after we'd planted hope. And I got a little postcard from someone who went to Bethlehem and they said, we cannot tell you how refreshing it is to hear Steve Treichler be Steve Treichler in John Piper's pulpit. And I took I took I took honor in that just because I was saying it's like saying you don't have to be someone else. Mm-hmm. Now the trick on that is they don't know who they are though. <laughs> right. So you're trying to figure out who am I? What is my thing? How am I going to communicate? And you're just so young you're you're trying to learn it and you don't realize you're imprinting on people that you're that you're that you're like and mm-hmm. so uh, that's that's a that's a mistake. The, the other big one is you know we we talk about this all the time with our with our young guys. It, you don't have to drop all of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology every sermon. Okay, so there's a reason that the book is what 1,200 pages. I mean, it it takes a year to read the book, and so take some time. It's okay. Relax. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I want to transition now to talk a little bit more about developing leaders. A uh, number of guys that we've had on the podcast so far have mentioned LDI. Uh, mentioned that they they took a part of it either before seminary, after seminary, as a replacement for seminary. They've came and they've partook in LDI at Hope. Um, tell us about LDI. What sure. is it, and and why did it come to be? Yeah, in in um, well, the the concept LDI uh, was I stole it from the Navigators. The Navigators had a thing called LDI. Leadership Development Institute that they did out in Colorado Springs at their headquarters uh, at Glen Airy there. And it was a, a year-long internship program where you'd go out and you'd get developed in, uh, a, in fact, a lot of the things that, that we uh, do the same thing with in, in some way, shape, or form. And then you also worked for the grounds. And so they had this program, I don't know how many years. Stacy Reinhardt was the director of it for many years, a famous navigator and uh, and it, it probably ran eight, ten years or something like that. Always intrigued me. I thought, what a what a great concept to have people that are there and they're really focusing on leadership. So in 1999, about the same time I came to this conviction that this is what I want to give my rest of my life to was these three things. Uh, I went to be a part of an organization in town at that time. It was called Transforming Ministry or McClick, Mentoring and Coaching Leaders in Churches. Dave Sulek was the director. Uh, at that time, and uh, uh, I was part of it, and I just wanted to observe what he was doing to try to do non-traditional training, church-based training, um, to help. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think it competes with seminary. Maybe, maybe it does. It, it's all about training. It doesn't matter where you get it. I mean, what difference does it make, right? Nobody's. If if you're ripped, I mean, if your abs are just ripped. It doesn't matter which gym you went to. It just meant you did a bunch of crunches somewhere, right? And Or whatever. So that was our thinking is like there's there's things we need to get. I think from them we developed into, and it really comes from an organization called CCBT, uh, Center for Church-Based Training. Uh, Gene gets his ministry out of um, Plano, Texas. No, that's not the right city. Uh, it's in Texas, a, a suburb of Dallas. Uh, anyway, he had this organization and they had broken it down to three big pillars, a biblical thinking, Christ-like character, and ministry skills. Totally ripped that off from those guys, shamelessly, and said, that's it, man. If you have to focus on the big three, that's it. I want to get people thinking biblically. Their character is molded by being a follower of Jesus. And they have some skill so that they can minister to others. And we try to focus in on those three things. So that year of exploration then led to an internship. A one-year internship at Hope, which we started in 2000. We're entering into our, uh, I guess it'd be a 19th year if you do it inclusively, of doing interns. Um, and I don't, I don't know exactly how many. I'm sure I can't count them. Um, geez, I don't know, average probably eight a year, five days a year. I, I don't know. I've never really counted how many people have gone through that program directly. A lot of other people have taken some of the courses for biblical thinking. Um um, and uh, what what we just saw is what we want to do is develop leaders, but to us, leadership development does not equal slot filling in our needs as a church. That's key. We have to fill slots in our church, but that's not what leadership development is. Leadership development actually meant to us, most of our graduates leave us intentionally to go find other places to minister and to create other spaces. 
in a variety of different ways. In fact, as I look back on our first seven interns, there's one intern who's still at our church. I know it's 19 years ago, but but even so. But all of them are engaged in ministry. It's mm-hmm. crazy. There's seven interns our first year. They're all engaged in ministry all over the country. So we use leadership development as a way to say, this is the way we're going to trash the kingdom of darkness is by developing leaders. And we firmly believe that. The program now has expanded to have a program for lay people, which is around 60 people involved in this year. We have 10-year first-year interns and another four that are doing a vocational track that we have as well. Very cool. And if if somebody is wanting to do this at their church or in their context, how do they do it well, especially if they're short on resources, if they don't have the ability to create a program that has teachers, people working part or full time? Are there changes in the way that they think about how they go about their weekly tasks or their just overall framework for the way that they approach their work that they can do to make uh, church based training a thing in their church? Great question. It's the number one question we get. Okay, great. So you have this culture of, you know, we have a lot of college students. And so uh, we have this culture where it's a natural people taking one more year after they graduate or shortly after they graduate, taking a little hiatus from their work or whatever doesn't interrupt their lives. So they say, well, it's easy for you. And I get that. In some ways, I'm sympathetic to that. But as I read the New Testament, it doesn't say develop leaders if you have the perfect context, okay? Strange. But if you don't, then, hey, don't, you know, whatever. I think the trick is is figuring out what would work in your context in those three elements. Hmm. Biblical thinking, Christ-like character, and ministry skills. What does that look like in your context? That's good. How do you do that? And the, the hard answer we have for you is, I don't know. I don't know how to do that in your context because I'm not in your context. Right. You are. You know your people. How can you take leaders from point A to point B? How can you develop them in these things? And if this should keep you awake at night. Be thinking, how can we do this? Because you have some really key people that you'd love to pour into them and, and really pour into them. How do you do that? We think that, now in our case, we have a director, uh, probably gives uh, 15 to 20 hours of his work a week on that. We have other staff, granted, we're, but we've been doing this a while. We have quite a few. In the early days, there was two of us that did the whole program. And we each gave 20% of our time to developing leaders. Hmm. So we both worked about 50 hours a week. So that was about 10 hours for each of us that we gave to developing leaders. That meant not only teaching the classes, but meeting with them, mentoring them, coaching them, you know, all the different things that were engaged with it. So it's going to cost you. And it costs us, I think we ask every staff person to think of at least 10% of their job as leadership development. So if you look at our overall budget, and all that kind of thing. We we think we pour in about a hundred, two hundred two hundred thousand dollars a year that we lose, but we think that's part of our ministry. But it goes straight into leadership development. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they pay a little tuition here or there, but it comes nowhere near covering the cost of what we give to to cause this to happen. So you got to have the bandwidth. You got to prioritize. When you do this, you can't do something else. So if you're focusing on a leadership development, you're not going to be able to do some of the other things that maybe you, you want to do. And so you've got to say, I value this enough to put it as a priority. That's really good. Uh, lastly here, want to talk about church planting. Okay? Yeah. And uh, there's a number of people who have tried to answer the question. A lot of them do it well, but want to hear it from you. 
Why would we plant churches? Why do that? Bible says to the Bible says to, but I mean, why, why dedicate so much of our time to this? Why do this podcast? Why start mission 16, 18? Why do any of this? Yeah. I'm still just convinced. And I've been around church, church planting and church planters now for 22 years. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, um, like any movement, there's a lot of, uh, uh, what's the nice way to put it? The word nut job came to my mind, but that's probably not. So I'm not going to say that word. There's a lot of real interesting people that come and go in this thing. And they're there for a year or two or three. And then they're they're not going to last. And they're in it for the wrong reasons. And da-da-da-da-da. But that's the way it was for Paul in Philippians. Whether from false motives or, or pure, Christ is being preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Right? So it's nothing new there. People are going to jump onto a bandwagon. When we started in 96, it was not sexy to be a church planner. It became sexy in around 2000. And there was a lot of reasons for that. And they're not bad necessarily. At the same time, being around this thing now for, for 22 years, uh, I do believe church planning is the way you've changed the, changed the game. I, I look at what's happening in with a lot of people who are have a lot of energy and are focused in on evangelism and discipleship and leadership development. And most of that energy I see is in the areas of church planting. Hmm. And so that's why I think that's how we're going to win the game is by church planting. Now, that said, just recently, I'm very intrigued by the concept of church revitalization. I think there's actually something here that we've not been able to figure it out yet. And that always intrigues me. And maybe because my church is 22 years old and is in need of revitalization, <laughs> maybe that's why. But as I look at this and I think, Okay, after I'm done, and the church will be 50, right? 28 years from now, it'll be 50. It'll need revitalization. And if it's going to keep its place in being a significant church planting, energizing thing in the city, it's going to need that. What would that look like? How do we do that? I'm very intrigued by that as well. But at the same time, I realize I'm, I'm 54 now. I probably got about 20 more years, and I don't want to waste them. So I don't want to pour my time into something that's not going to give. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but not 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 going to pan out and make a difference. I, don't, I love the Lord and I hate the devil, and I want to go into His kingdom and trash the joint. Right. So we have to be strategic on what we're going to break for trash and stuff. Right. It's a negative image, but it works in my brain. <laughs> I I I think we have to be strategic on that, but I. I, and I know church planting is a major part of that deal. I'm now beginning, and maybe, maybe, talk to me five years from now, maybe I'll think that was a waste of time. But I do think we can wake the sleeping giant so that we can get 10, 15% of them back on track. Mm. If that's a possibility, that's going to make a major difference. Yeah. Church planting itself requires losing a lot of resources. I mean, yeah. mostly people that you've raised up to be leaders. Right. How do you create a culture within your church that dedicates its energy, dedicates its resources to church planting? Yeah, I was sitting behind a guy yesterday. I was at the Viking debacle game yesterday when they <laughs> lost to the Buffalo Bill, the the mighty, mighty Buffalo Bills. Uh, but I was sitting right behind a guy, and he had a, a, a jersey on. And I have no idea. I wanted to talk to him, but I was in too much despair. But his jersey, it just said Sisyphus, and then it was the number zero. 
The Viking jersey? Yeah, Sisyphus. That's brilliant. You know, the, 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 the Greek mythology where the guy has to push the rock up all day long and then every day, every day at the end of the day, it rolls back down, right? And I, I thought, yeah, the, the reality in church planting is that every day you start at the – every morning you wake up and you're just like everybody else and you're thinking about maintenance and how I'm going to keep this church going and all that kind of thing. And every day you got to say no, no. We got to develop leaders who are going to leave. We got to start churches who are going to be in another location. They may outgrow us. Uh, they may be cooler than us. Uh, we just got an email from a couple that I absolutely love in our church who've who've uh, just said, "Yeah, it's just time for us to move closer to where we live." Uh, but just to encourage you, we're going to go to your granddaughter church, this church in St. Louis Park that's pastored by. Um, uh, Andrew and I can't think of his last name right now. Peterson. Peterson, yeah. And so, sorry, Andrew, if you're listening. Sorry, dude, I love you. I think of you all the time, but I just spaced your last name. There. <laughs> but the uh, uh, and I just think, yeah, that's really really cool. And yet, it's the, the the default is always to think, oh my gosh, though we're losing this great couple and this great family, and it's just been such a joy to watch them grow in the Lord and all this kind of deal. And yet, it's like, no, it's a total win. It's a total win. Hmm. You you have to reset the scorecard. And every single morning, the rock is back down to the bottom. Every morning, I've got to tell myself, that's not the scorecard. Hmm. The scorecard is not the weekly attendance. It's not the weekly giving. It's, it's not these things. It's are we changing the landscape of the Twin Cities and the region? Are we doing that? That's the scorecard. Hmm. Uh, and, but the default, every morning, it's like that guy's jersey. The rock is back at the bottom, and I think it too. Oh my gosh, we're not making budget. Oh my gosh, we're in decline. Oh my gosh, you know, whatever. Same thing every pastor thinks about. And you have to fight through that. And you have to get your your life from Jesus Christ and nothing else. If you get your life from how your church is doing, you will die a small death every time. I do not care what size your church is. It'll either stop growing as fast as it was or it'll grow a little bit less or your money will be a little bit less or da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever. And instead, if you say, no, actually... What we're really about is we really want to see the kingdom expand. That's what we're, and that do not come naturally. There's not a day when you say, "Oh, I've arrived where I firmly believe this," and it's just it just resonates with me. It's like, nope, I got to remind myself of this all mm-hmm. the time. That's good. Last question here for you before we wrap up. We're already over time, but we'll just keep the ball rolling here. Uh, since becoming the regional director for Acts 29 here in the Upper Midwest, would love to hear you talk about. Um, some of the things that you see just in the church planning landscape. You've had a chance to connect with a number of young leaders. And I'd love to hear from you. What are some of the things that just excite you as you look at that? And what are the, some of the things that you'd like to see change based on your experiences so far? Well, in my, my experience with Acts 29 is, is very, very encouraging by and large. I mean, there's always hard things, but by and large, very encouraging. Again, the quality of the candidates, the quality of the people that are starting churches is so, so much higher. Um, we would not have been able to assess positively for church planning <laughs> in 96 with Acts 29 with its current bar. In fact, I talked to many of the assessors and they say, I don't think we would have. When we started, we wouldn't have. We're asking them to be so much further down the road in in areas of, of uh, personal maturity, um, ministry understanding, gospel integration, not just theologically, but pragmatically into their marriages and parenting and everything. I mean, the bar is really high, mm-hmm. you know, and 
and that's that's encouraging in one sense. Um, uh, but I don't think it's just uniquely to Acts 29. I think most church planning organizations have gone up. And therefore, our stats used to be one out of three back when I started. One out of three churches on their fifth or seventh birthday were thriving. And now it's somewhere between, matters who you talk to, which organization. But some say it's as, as low as 70. I haven't heard anyone say it's lower than 70. And I've heard some say it's high as 90%. That if people go through their systems and they make it through, that they uh, that's where they're at after seven years. So, I mean, it's really, really high. That's encouraging. I mean, I think that's a, a really, really good sign. Um, I think some of the things that discourage me about this younger generation um, in the leadership is, um, and, and again, Acts 29 is a unique organization in that we're both missionally and theologically driven. Um, what I have seen now with groups that aren't like this, so this is not meant to be like casting stones at other organizations, but but it's just an observation, and I think it's a real one, is that I've watched um, organizations that were just, they weren't theologically driven, but they were theologically centric enough where it all held together. And right now in our very polarizing political shifting towards a lot of things, I am watching significant drift. And I look at that and say, you add 10 years to that, 20 years to that. I don't, I don't know if the gospel's left anymore Hmm. with organizations that were pretty, it just was assumed was the gospel centrality, never really assessed. It just was kind of assumed and Hmm. it was maybe fairly assumed. That's not the case anymore. I do think we are like organizations right now, like uh, the Gospel Coalition and others, I think are right in the thick of this, like trying to say, hey, let's let's not be fundamentalists here, but let's hold on to the gospel for all we're worth. That does concern me. I, I'm not, you can probably tell by the, this whole podcast, I'm not a, the sky is falling kind of guy. But this one does. If we don't put some things in place, there will be significant church planning organizations that we would no longer be able to, to partner with mm. and just say, yeah, we can't plant churches through you guys. Yeah. Uh, we're just not on the same page. Yeah. And I, and I know I said that was the last question, but I lied. How has Jesus been the answer to you lately? We, we hear a lot of uh, gospel is the answer to our deepest needs, but practically how has that been the answer for you lately? How has he answered your deepest need? Huh. See, this isn't in the contract, so I'm not obligated to answer this question. <laughs> but no, I think I think a lot of young guys would just be encouraged to hear you answer that practically. How how has Jesus been the thing that you need, and the answer to you lately? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm not a po- I'm not, I've got a lot of education, uh, and so, but I I still think it comes down to some pretty simple things. At the end of the day, it comes down to a relationship I have with Jesus Christ. And yeah, we went through. We've been through a rough season in our church, just some staffing situations and whatever, and it's been rough, real rough. And I remember I went through a similar thing about eight years ago, and I was in really bad shape eight years ago. And the number one question that haunted me in eight years ago was, "Why am I so bent out of shape about this?" And the question was, "How is or why is Jesus Christ not enough?" And I think in those eight years, he has communicated to me in a variety of ways. Um, I am enough. I am enough. 
I think something happened for me too. And, you know, I haven't really shared this publicly, but, but I will, uh, about, I think it was two or three years ago. I was out fly fishing with a buddy of mine. We're both pastors. And, uh, I told him something and I, I must've been even more than that. I think I just turned 50 and, uh, we were just talking about retirement cause that's what old guys do, I guess. And uh, how we're doing on our, you know, plans, our retirement plans that we're not a burden to society or whatever. I'm going to be a burden to you guys and begging for money or whatever, but, but how are we going to do that and everything? And then I just said something to him. I'd never said out loud ever. And it hit me and I thought, wow, that's pretty intense. That sounded funny coming out of my mouth even. But I said, um, you know, I love my job and I love what I do. And I love uh, seeing what God is doing in younger people. But I could be done. And what I meant by that is, especially if my elders are listening, uh, what I meant by that was, I think as a young guy, you're ambitious and you you kind of want to prove yourself. And I don't mean that necessarily in an unhealthy way. It's just, I want to make a dent. And I, I don't feel that anymore. I don't feel this pressure to be something or whatever. And I think when you come to that place, and I, I don't know if you can come there till you're 50. Okay, so young guys are going, oh, I just want to be there. It's like, I know you don't. You, I don't know if you're able to, but you get to that place and you go, yeah, I, I, I have a lot more to do. If if like my buddy Bill Berg, I live to be 102, I'm halfway there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and he ministered to his death. So great. But coming to that place, it's like, yeah, I don't fear losing this job. Uh, I, I, I... I don't know. That's not one of my fears anymore. Mm. And I think then Jesus just becomes even a, a more sweet thing. It's like, yeah, I don't. Steve, the pastor is much more replaced by, by, by Steve, the follower of Jesus, Steve, the sheep, not necessarily Steve, Steve, the shepherd. So, Hey, you asked an un, unscripted question. You're going to get an unscripted I like answer. it. Yeah. That, that definitely wraps up the time that we have. Steve, thank you for being on your own podcast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, we're thankful for your ministry, man. Hey, thanks bro. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, there you have it, folks. That wraps up another episode of the Midwest Church Planting Project. We want to give a special thanks and shout-out to Hope Hymns. These guys are incredible. It's what you're hearing right now in your speakers and at the beginning of the episode. They they take old, old hymns, and they slap some new melodies on them and make them sound fantastic. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your music. So please, avail yourself of that opportunity. Hey, we've been loving hearing from you guys. Simply search the Midwest Church Planting Project on Twitter or Instagram, and you can drop us all your questions, your comments, and your snide remarks. We love it all. Thanks again for listening to the Midwest Church Planting Project. We'll see you back here the week after next. Give God.